Hi. Welcome to another episode of Paul on Power, Power System Design's podcast on the latest in power and power design. I'm your host, Alex Paul, and today I've got Lawrence Saliga and Jefferson Rhodes uh, there with the uh, MISO desk and the meteorolo- meteorological uh, department. One's an uh, analyst and the other is a meteorologist, and they're from a company called Genscape. They provide uh, energy information for the commodity and financial markets, and I've brought them on the show specifically because we're moving into the smart grid and we're moving forward into a new generation of interaction with systems, especially within the power space. But the reality is the world is there, and it's not just the application space, it's the uh, marketplace and it's the environment that we have to create these systems in. So I brought Lauren and Jefferson in to talk about this, and I'm going to step back a little and let them step in and talk. So uh, hi, Lauren and Jefferson. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you, Alex, for having us. Thank you, Alex. The pleasure is mine because as I just finished telling the audience, you have to design for a real world, and it's nice to have people whose job is to actually deal with the real world sometimes on the show. So I'm just going to let you start with how do you see where we are now looking forward how do you see the whole issue of the grid developing and i don't i'm not trying to ask you to solve everything in one sentence but you're you're doing market data what does the market think about the smart grid that's a good place to start yep so looking at the development of a smart grid um and what the market's kind of pricing in is um you know we're seeing a lot of volatility enter the marketplace um a lot of different things kind of coming up as we look at government regulation coming in Certainly the smart grid plays into that. Uh, We're looking at a couple key features which I think may help to develop the market going forward. Um, One of those um, is the demand response that we see, which is a voluntary reduction of demand um, by utilities, by consumers, by um, businesses during times when generation is really kind of coming up short. So, for instance, last week what we saw um, was a perfect um, kind of instance of looking at that demand response. If I may jump in, if I may jump in very quickly, Lauren, you're talking about the polar vortex thing, the the big cold snap we had. That's correct. Um, So we were looking at temperatures that we haven't seen historically for, uh, Jefferson, correct me if I'm wrong, at least a couple decades. Yeah, and and basically what we saw last week was a a pretty unique um, event in the short term, and and people tend to have short-term memories when it comes to the weather. And um, we, we got extremely cold um, all the way from the Canadian border um, through the Midwest down into the down into Texas and the in the Gulf Coast, and then that transitions towards the East Coast. Um, and basically, what we saw was several grid operators were failed to be able to, to to handle the 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 cold and the and the increase in demand. And we're not talking about anything that was historical. Um, we saw some daily records fall, but we did, certainly did not come close to setting um, historical low temperatures for, for uh, any areas. Um, and it sort of just goes to show that once, once these types of cold events in the wintertime, for instance, fall out of recent memory, um, it's, it seems like it's something spectacular. But in, in reality, it was, while it was extremely cold, um, it wasn't historically cold. But yet, we, yet the grid operators still sort of had trouble keeping up with the event. Well, that brings in a very interesting thing, Jefferson. If I, before I let Lauren continue, I just wanted to uh, ask that, though, to please uh, remind the audience again of that, because that's a very strong point. If this is continuing to happen, 
how, how can the providers get away with saying, oh, we're surprised, and they weren't even, as you say, record-breaking temperatures? I mean, I think that they try they, they do the best that they can in terms of forecasting um, ahead of a winter or ahead of the summer, what are the historical things we've seen. But um, again, many of these grid operators are only in their current form, have only been in their current form for, for 10 years, uh, 12 years at the outside. Uh, when you get an event like this that falls, that, that falls outside of sort of that date range, um, sometimes they can fall a little short in terms of, uh, of where they come with their forecast. Um, and I think it's just a good reminder that uh, you need to look at um, the entire record or the entire weather record at times and, um, and try to do the best you can to, to uh, not discount uh, cold winters anymore in, in light of all the talk about global warming or climate change and things like that. Right. Well, and then, and as even to address that, as you pointed out, these weren't even that record highs. So just in the context of being ready for a, a more aggressive weather is just common sense. I mean, it, 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 I would want my systems to work all the time. You know, the community that I serve, the engineering community, I would imagine they would be a little more um, aware that these providers are using systems that they designed, they should also be concerned because it impacts the reputation of the subsystem suppliers and the core technologies involved if the grid providers can't provide, right? And, I mean, you could answer if you'd like as well, Lauren, on that. Yes, certainly. And what we see with some of these contexts is, um, for instance, the region I look at, which is the Midwest, um, they have um, systems in place where they go ahead and they enter certain um, kind of calls to the market to say, um, hey, you know, we see this weather coming. We're going to work on being prepared. Um, so what we have is a couple of different levels of that. Um, first, we go into something called conservative operations. Uh, what conservative operations means is that any unnecessary work um, ends up getting suspended. So that means any transmission line work, uh, it kind of gets pushed back. Any generation outages um, also get pushed back at that point in time, because what you want at that, you know, at these kind of critical junctures are all your generators and all your units running um, as best they can. Um, and what we had kind of seen over the course of this polar vortex moving through the the country is that all these grid operators all had these systems and designs in place to kind of deal with this. Um, however, what ends up happening, what we saw happen in real time. Um, via some of our, our technology here at Genscape, is some of those units, despite their best efforts, came down. Um, so that kind of had a trickle-down effect where, um, you know, the engineers and everybody at these, at these system operators really kind of want to have everything they can online. Um, but due to, you know, unforeseen events, um, you really kind of lose sight of that and you really are left scrambling and kind of trying to make up the difference for what you see there. So it was certainly kind of unique that even though they do have some of these systems in place, um, even though you, you know, can prepare all you want, um, sometimes things are, are outside of your control, which make it even more difficult. So getting into your kind of topic of the smart grid, kind of having a little bit more of a micro approach to that, definitely is going to maybe help um, some of these grid operators in, in the future dealing with these kind of broad weather events. And that makes a lot of sense. That really does make a lot of sense, Lauren. Now, um, 
when you talk about that kind of data, do you get how granular does it get? Do you know how many of the outages were due to de- over demand and how many were due to equipment failure due to cold? Um, we don't have necessarily the greatest understanding of why some of these plants will come down. We'll definitely see um, plants that will be running um, longer. So as I mentioned, some units will have kind of pushed back their outage schedules um, to stay online to serve the demand for the cold weather. Um, so what we see is sometimes those plants will start coming down um, either because of kind of that fatigue um, or because they, they were scheduled to come down. Uh, when they come down unexpectedly, um, it definitely kind of propels the market and generates a lot more interest. Um, looking at kind of the pricing from last week, we hit several high prices in the wholesale market because of these kind of generation losses paired with this kind of very strong demand that we see once in a couple decades. Mm-hmm. Now, um, talking about some of this, that you do all of this analysis, and I can only see more of this than less because as the technology gets more sophisticated and the sensors become more widespread and the uh, software gets more mature, I imagine that big data will truly become a major force within the grid. I would 100% agree with that. I definitely think that um, the more granularity and the more information you can provide to the marketplace, and as Jefferson pointed out, that you know people forget about these events. Um, so with the big data and the collection that we had from last week from the event, it's definitely something that's going to get filed away and pulled up, um, looking at some of the kind of more, um, you know, statistical models that you might have saying, hey, you know, this might be your mean and your, your average for the time, but don't forget this outlier happened and don't forget what happened um, while that was occurring. Mm-hmm. What are some of the other interesting, I mean, in general, as we're uh, demand on electricity is going up, but I imagine it's got to be shifting in a lot of ways. There's a lot more parasitic power when you think about a lot of dead chargers plugged into walls, and usage curves change, I think, also probably based with almost on the data cycle nowadays as well. But what, what are some of the big picture strokes you're seeing? I mean, in, in, term, in terms of uh, looking at demand, um, Technology certainly has impacts um, on that, or increased technology in the population, but I mean, we still go back to the root causes of population shifts um, and, and weather drivers. Um, we certainly see increasing demand uh, where areas where population is shifted to or population growth is strongest, um, and that certainly changes uh, the pressures on different, uh, different regions. Uh, the ERCOT region, which is Texas, for instance, has a lot of uh, population growth uh, pressure um, as opposed to uh, other regions with, with static um, pressures. They see, they see more of a, uh, of a linear type growth, uh, in New England, for instance. Um, but yeah, and you definitely see um, shifting patterns uh, based on, um, on population. Um, and, you know, as the, as the population becomes more, more wired in, I'm sure that um, uh, parts, of the, parts of the demand can be attributed to that. And then on yeah. top of what Jefferson oops, sorry, is mentioning No, go is, ahead. No, no, please. Yeah. yeah. Um, you also see some of the kind of pockets of development, um, especially with fracking becoming a little bit more popular, um, especially in the Bakken and the Dakotas. Um, you do kind of see these kind of pop-up or pop-up demands. So as Jefferson was pointing out, you do see some um, increased activity in Texas around the Bakken and then around that Marcellus shell uh, as well. So that's interesting, though, because uh, so you're saying, in essence, the biggest pressures are not directly technology-driven, but are simply the old things, population and weather. 
Yeah, I would I would say that's that's pretty accurate. I think that the I think the electricity the techno the way technology drives electricity usage and we have innovations like the shift to LED light bulbs rather than CFL light bulbs, things like that. And you can I think you shift around demand a little bit more in, in terms of how technology impacts it. But that the the big sort of old fashioned drivers, population centers and, and the weather um, are still the are still the main things that, that we see driving demand. Well, you know, and that's actually very interesting, Jefferson, and one of the reasons to bring you on the show, because I think a lot of people within the industry uh, talk about certain drivers as far as energy consumption, uh, and they may be drivers, but the big ones are still the old ones. I guess that supports a lot of uh, basic thought on uh, planning. So now, speaking of planning, what would you say, I'd like to each of you to give me a couple of points. If you were advising someone on grid development, what would you give them as advice that they should do to make people like them better? Um, one of the big ones, especially in the Midwest, that we're seeing is the development of a lot of the renewable portfolio technologies, um, especially wind generation. Um, so one way that the grid's kind of, I don't want to say suffering, but um, is really needing development in um, is that kind of linking of the boom we've seen in wind generation out in Iowa, out in Minnesota, but you're really not seeing a lot of those traditional population centers and bringing that power, um, you know, via the transmission grid um, to your more densely populated areas, your Chicago's, um, your, your Cleveland's, your Indianapolis's. So that's definitely something that we're seeing um, as kind of a company developing across the board is a lot of these system operators are kind of acknowledging this need to move the power from where it's being kind of created to those demand centers that Jefferson was talking about. So, that's certainly one of the bigger ones we're seeing is kind of this development of, of the grid itself and kind of taking certain areas where we're seeing a lot of kind of rich renewables and bringing that to the cities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Did you know there's a contest in Britain right now for whoever can think of the best technology just to time shift power from night to day? <laughs> we have seen that, and we're definitely seeing some of that for um, some of the pump storage units we have in the, uh, in the uh, footprint um, so a lot of those are running, you know, at night when prices are, are looking pretty cheap, and then they run during the day when you're, you know, talking about $2,000 prices, and they're they're making a lot of money, and they're, you know, they're pretty happy with that. So it's definitely, you know, shifting that development and, you know, getting people to plug in potentially more electric cars at night to kind of smooth out some of those demand curves. So it's definitely definitely a couple interesting points there. Mm-hmm. How about you, Jefferson? I mean, well, in terms of the, the weather specifically, which is which is w- what I look at most of the time, is uh, trying to trying to quantify extreme events because you know either anecdotally or or whether it's whether it can be backed up by data and or whether it's media driven, the extreme events seem to, seem to catch all the headlines. People say, oh, they're happening more often, and whether or not that's true or not, um, they certainly have bigger and bigger impacts. Uh, as, as electricity demand goes upwards and upwards and upwards and population goes upwards, the extreme, the extreme events like we had last week have the biggest impact. So I think that um, as far as preparation and uh, prepare, being able to prepare for the extreme events better, and, and it's not to say that they weren't well prepared this time around. We, it was, we had good lead time on it. Um, they, they put the conservative operations into effect several days in advance this, uh, in the Midwest in particular. Um, it's just that um, getting, 
making sure that the capacity is there to be able to handle these types of events um, is, is sort of a, going forward would be the most important thing, I believe. And I agree with you. I agree with you completely, Jefferson. So, um, Lauren, do you have any final words? I always like to give my audience uh, the opportunity to hear the last words from the guests. So uh, do either of you have any last words or thoughts for the audience? I mean, I think Jefferson's kind of summed up this point really well in that these extreme events, you know, if they are occurring more frequently, um, are catching the headlines, and it's kind of something that people are definitely paying more attention to. So um, in the space we're in right now, it's we are kind of on the crest of seeing a lot more data coming in, a lot more analysis, and a lot of kind of, you know, on the precipice of, of some change here, and that's definitely a, kind of an exciting industry to look at, and that preparation, I think, is definitely going to help kind of round that out and maybe drive a little of that push as well. I agree. I agree. So, I would like to thank you both for taking the time to be with us, especially to provide such uh, really rich information and a different perspective to uh, the engineering community, especially uh, in light of recent events that uh, make us all mindful of it. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. And I'd like to thank the audience for taking the time to be with us. We wouldn't be here without you. Tell your friends. This is Alex Paul for Paul Don Power. Have a great day.